0: no purchase necessary. VGW Group, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to Love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice remote.
2: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career.
1: podcasts i'm robert evans this is behind the bastards it's a podcast uh, about bad people the worst in the world in fact you might say as i say every week when i open this show I'm Robert Evans. Did I already say that? Probably, but there's no way to tell because I can't go back and listen to the audio I'm recording. It's being beamed live directly into your ears. And my guest for this live audio experience that is absolutely authentically live is Cody Johnston. Hello there. Thank you for having me on this live podcast. hmm. Now, Cody, you know that we're live, which means we're not going to be able to edit out any of your racist rants against the Swiss.
3: Okay. I mean, okay. that's why I say them. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't rant about that so people can not hear it.
1: We have been protecting Cody from getting Swiss canceled for years, but today we're doing a live episode and bring uh, it on, yeah, bring it on, like the Swiss bring on, yeah. I don't miss, actually have miss me good.
3: with the Swiss. Let me tell you. <laughs>
1: okay, so Cody. <laughs> We got a fun episode this week and a special episode that I brought you on for because I know that you're a huge fan of the guy we're going to be talking about this week. I doctor. love being fans. fans. Doctor. doctor. He's a doctor. Jordan B. Peterson.
3: I love Jordan Peterson, who's a doctor. I, 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 I he want is to a show doctor, some yes. respect. Um, yeah. I am very happy that you're doing this episode and that I get to partake in it um mm-hmm. he's a he's one of my heroes so
1: y- yeah you um, love him
3: love him uh yeah. watched a lot of his speeches uh lectures i guess you'd call them sermons mm-hmm. one might call them he might call them sermons yeah. he might um, call them
1: sermons yeah. we'll talk <laughs> oh, about that
3: yeah. <laughs>
1: oh good uh yeah yeah i mean so you know you know i joke about starting a cult a lot on this show do you um know? yeah i do i do and there's wait it's they're a, jokes it's a, i don't in join my show. your cult They're jokes to join your cult. They're not entirely jokes because I will probably start a cult one. It's kind of my retirement plan because I don't really think 401ks are going to be useful that far into the future. But having a cult, you know, you can always make money on a cult. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Cash in on people. And that's why we're talking about Jordan B. Peterson today, Uh, because he's Mm -hmm. not a cult leader in the traditional sense. Um, But he did create a cult like it's a weird situation because he never like had a bunch of people move on to land and wound fight you know federal law enforcement agencies i guess in canada that would be the mounties but he still does have a cult and they if you like go to their little spaces on reddit and stuff like they are still they are completely devoted to this man and his ideas even though spoilers his life has gone
3: completely oh my god the deep end. i know I was gonna say, like, um, I didn't
1: realize that it was
3: still going that strong. Like, I don't know. Yeah. because he cause he disappeared because things are
1: crumbling uh, for him.
3: Yeah, because um, his life
1: has been shattered by his own. Yes, yes.
3: Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I thought I I, I assumed that there were there would be people still uh, doing that, but I uh, I haven't I haven't delved into those spaces in a while. Yeah. So good for them. Good for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's very fun. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about jordan b peterson um and we're going to talk about fascism because uh while i'm not sure if i would call dr jordan b peterson a fascist i would say he's one of the most insidious platformers of a specific strain of ideology that feeds into the fascist movement in the united states yeah and worldwide it's fun
3: i would it's agree with stuff. that i i actually might go a little farther than you um in yeah. uh, to label him um <laughs>
1: Yeah, but. I feel like we might just we might just give the whole story and then people can apply their yeah. own labels to yeah, Jordan yeah, Balthazar yeah, exactly. Peterson. Before we talk about Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, I'd like to talk about the Bolshevik Revolution. Now this is a topic that that Dr. Jordan B. Peterson Uh, is particularly obsessed with. Multiple interviewers uh, will note that his house is absolutely filled with Soviet propaganda, much of it from like the early eras of that regime. Uh, And when questioned about it, he'll generally explain it as a sort of know your enemy deal. Like, you know, you've got to, I want to understand Marxists. And then he'll say something like, Marxism is resurgent in a haunted (laughs) voice, which he said to a a journalist from the New York Times, I think it was. Marxism Um, is resurgent. He says it a lot. Yeah, Marxism (laughs) is Yeah, imagine Kermit, uh, yeah. if if you if you took the brain of Joe McCarthy and shoved it into Kermit the Frog. That's mm-hmm. more or less jo- Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. So back in the late 19-teens and 20s, there were a lot of people who had the same concerns about Marxism all across Western Europe. And this was a somewhat more reasonable fear then because Marxism was certainly sur- resurgent mm-hmm. or at least surging in that period. Um, and fascists in particular were terribly paranoid about it. Yeah. Uh, they weren't the only ones. Obviously, a lot of reasons to be concerned about uh, the Soviet state, but uh, there was some... Shall we say, unreasonable paranoia about everything from the left from folks who were, you know, proto Nazis. Now, a term began to percolate among these people, called, and the term was Judeo-Bolshevism. Uh, and this was kind of the the word for a conspiracy that communism was being spread around the world by Jewish people. They were often compared to like a virus for communism that introduces it into the bloodstream of a healthy society. Um, and that was kind of the strain of thought that led to the Holocaust, at least one of them, you know, a lot of one, stuff to yeah, like the yeah. Holocaust. Yeah, but that was a big part of it. Um, now, it is true that a number of like the first Bolsheviks were Jewish, the guys who carried out, you know, the, the big 1917 revolution in, in Russia. Um, but there were also a lot of people who were not at all Jewish, who were involved in making the Soviet Union be a thing, including Joseph Stalin. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and also, if you actually look at the particularly the old, early history of the Soviet Union, not a great place to be Jewish, <laughs> like some real bad things happened to Jewish folks then. So. Um, Of course, Tsarist Russia, also a terrible place to be Jewish. I would say that yeah, anyway. I mean historically um, many, many, many places. Yeah, basically everywhere, actually. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that's yeah. But if you wanna like like people sometimes overstate how bad the USSR was for Jewish people to make it look like it was like a specific thing with communism, whereas like the reality is is under the czar in like the late 1800s, you had the Chelnitsky Massacre, who was the largest massacre of Jewish people uh, probably in history until the Holocaust. Anyway, fuck the czar. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this conspiracy basically claimed that all Jewish people everywhere were engaged in a covert plan to destroy Christianity and Western civilization by bringing communism in. Like, communism is an atheistic thing. Like, you, there's no there not supposed to be any religion, under, especially, like, the kind of communism that was being pushed in this period. And so the idea was like, this is the Jews trying to kill Christianity by yeah. making everyone a communist. Yeah.
3: Oh, uh, they love, Ah, uh, Everybody yeah. loves saying that the Jews are trying to destroy Christianity. Yep. As a rule, Christmas, if yeah. you're
1: saying the Jews and anything follows after that, mm-hmm. maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe if don't, if maybe the you the don't say the If the subject of your
3: sentence is that, it's probably not yeah. going to go well.
1: yeah. As the Nazi movement picked up steam, Nazi writers and media critics gained popularity in German culture, and they really like they were kind of enraged by this. You know, Weimar Germany, as we've talked about, was a super progressive place. A lot of like it, like unprecedented gains for LGBT people. Um, kind of some of the first recognition of folks who were like non-binary, and also just like a crazy amount of art. And of course, a decent amount of that art was pornographic because like people people be having fun. Uh, yeah, with the guy, you really mean that you Kaiser mean guy. you mean
3: degenerate Robert? You mean degenerate, degenerate yeah. art?
1: Yeah, that's what these Nazi critics would have said. And and they, they went further. They claimed that like all of this art, uh, a lot of which was, you know, uh, queer in orientation, was somehow tied to communism. And it was part of a plot to weaken German culture to allow a left wing takeover. If this seems familiar, it's because you can hear the exact same thing if you turn on like a third of YouTube. Um, Oh, yeah. 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 So the term cultural Bolshevism overtook Judeo Bolshevism in this period. And that was kind of like the more educated, less bigoted persons, like cultural Bolshevism. They're trying to they're trying to Bolshevize our nation by going through the arts and stuff and like taking over kids minds with their evil books and their dirty pictures. I always love
3: stuff like that just because Sorry, it's just like it's just art. Like what do you like? What do you think art is? It's an ex- yeah. like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. It's fine. Cares? I
1: mean, I know that when I saw Guernica, uh, I suddenly was like, oh, healthcare! Everyone should have that. Mm. <laughs> um. I mean, other things went through my mind when I. Yeah. So the rest <laughs> is kind of unfortunately history. Uh, the Nazis were able to convince enough people that this was happening, that cultural Bolshevism was a thing. Uh, and they won open elections and then they destroyed democracy. And then, you know, Holocaust and such. Not so a, not so a good story, but a well known one at this point. So keep all of that in mind as we start our tale of Dr. Jordan Balthazar Peterson. And I must be honest with you, we both enjoy calling him Jordan Balthazar Peterson, but that's not mm. his middle name. His middle name is Burnt. It's, it's Bumblebee. Oh yeah. Burnt,
3: sorry. Yeah. Burnt.
1: B E R N T, which is not a name I think I've seen before. Uh he was born on June twelfth, nineteen sixty two in Edmonton, Alberta. Canada's Texas. Uh, He grew up in a small town called Fairview, which was about five hours out from the city. His dad was a teacher and a vice principal. His mother, Beverly, was a librarian at a nearby college. Jordan was the oldest of three kids, uh, and if he can be believed, he started reading at age three. Um, And he was like a big... Big book nerd, which I do believe. He's very clearly has spent a lot of time reading books and not so much time interacting with human beings. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, he's a a reader. He's a reader, that one. So one of his earliest memories was watching the enormous state funeral for Bobby Kennedy, and he recalls that he thought, I'll have a funeral like that one day.
3: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I, that is i mean no. that makes everything yeah. i know about him and what he said as a young man that adds yeah. up. i didn't catch that that quote. yeah oh
1: yeah that's that's a great reaction to have to the death of someone else and the trauma of a neighboring country uh, it's like one of these days i'm gonna be dead like that i'll like, be appreciated I'll, if people, like that. people will think that's cool i'm that cool like man. bobby kennedy that's <sighs> pretty uh that's pretty telling. Wouldn't it be wild if Jordan B. Peterson got into politics and was then also assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan in California? Mm. I'll have a funeral like that one day. Is Sirhan Sirhan still alive? Maybe. So uh, Jordan B. Peterson was raised Protestant uh, and as a young child he was sent to confirmation class which is a weird ritual that some Christians do. I did it when I was a kid and Christian where you like study the Bible with an overly enthusiastic youth group leader who tells you that Gandhi is probably in hell and then you pass a test and you get baptized by the priest at a big ceremony thing. Uh, And like most uh, young people who have such an experience and are are readers, uh, Jordan was left with questions. He pressed his teacher about the literal truth of biblical creation stories. Now, I'm not sure exactly what argument this guy made in response. I haven't found it written down anywhere, but Peterson found it unconvincing, and he suspected the teacher didn't really believe the argument himself. And I'm going to quote now from a write-up in The New Yorker. In Maps of Meaning, which is his first book, we'll talk about it later, he remembered <laughs> yeah. his reaction. Religion was for the ignorant, weak, and superstitious, he wrote. I stopped attending church. I joined the modern world. He turned first to socialism and then to political science, seeking an explanation for the general social and political insanity and evil of the world, In each time finding himself unsatisfied. Now, yeah. A lot of smart pretty much any intelligent person and most people yeah pretty much any person is going to like at some point be like oh boy shit's fucked up and you gotta like you gotta like try to puzzle that out for yourself yeah you work through
3: it you figure out like yeah Yeah. um there's something about like i'm gonna solve the mysteries of the universe yeah is a bit uh more intense with mr peterson
1: yeah he has to he's a, he's a very intense person and the way that he frames things is always intense that will become very obvious as we go along so he says that he was a socialist and yeah, maybe like his time as a socialist was like so he had this librarian when he was in school who was the mother of the 17th premier of Alberta, uh, Rachel Notley. Um, and Notley was a member of the New Democratic Party. And Peterson did spend his teenage years volunteering for the NDP, which is like a social democratic party. Um, so a socialist in that sense, like he was not like a radical communist or anything. He was like kind of like a probably Bernie Sanders ish. Yeah, would social safety, be that kind of stuff.
3: Say. And like, yeah, quality, that kind um
1: stuff. And now, he was during this period of voracious reader, spurred on at first by the work of George Orwell, uh, but he eventually moved on to Alexander uh, um I always pronounce it wrong, I'm sure. Uh, and Ayn Rand, uh, which I always pronounce right. And yeah. according to a profile in <laughs> Toronto Life, quote... <laughs> While he admired leaders like Ed Broadbent, who was a, a, an NDP leader, he became disillusioned by the party's peevish functionaries. He found Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier, which he read as an undergrad at Grand Prairie enlightening. Orwell did a political, psychological analysis of the motivations of the intellectual, tweed-wearing middle-class socialist and concluded that people like that didn't like the poor, they just hated the rich. I thought, aha, that's it, it's resentment. Anyone who set out to change the world by first changing other people was suspicious.
3: Ah, is that why we'd like to change the world and make it better for everybody? It's because we're resentful. Is that why...
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things going on there. One of them is understandable, which is that like he got involved with a an actual like established political party and it was full of assholes, which every political party is because yeah, political parties are very easy to things. get
3: disillusioned with any of that yeah. stuff by at an sure. early age yeah, involving yourself.
1: In and that. I, I think he's probably right that a lot of these kind of like intellectual, professional left wing politicos didn't like the poor and didn't spend any time around them. They just hated rich people. I'm like, yeah, that, that uh, of course. Yes. Like, um, obviously um I, where he gets wrong is like number one the idea that socialism is changing the world by first changing other people i think there's some assholes who say that but i think most of us would say like no no no. people are fine it's these systems that are incredibly corrupt and fucked up and unjust that need to be changed and then like people can actually live their lives and and be decent um without these horrible systems crushing them that's how I would go. It's like that's these a, just, hierarchies that's the and goal. things we yeah. build. Yeah. Um, recognizing,
3: so, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's always fascinating to me when reactionaries like Peterson profess a love for Orwell because they inevitably misinterpret him. And I, I, I just, like... <laughs> They don't know what Orwell was saying, um, which is odd because Orwell's a pretty clear writer, but it happens a lot with him. Um, Orwell was not critiquing socialism itself as much as he was criticizing the kind of intellectual, lefty, academic, politico types who spend all their time arguing over theory and never actually do anything. Orwell was a committed socialist his entire life, and he was profoundly working class. You read any of his work, like not just his like, like shit, like um he talks about stuff like that a lot in um uh, homage to Catalonia, but like also. Like a lot of his essays and book reviews, like he wrote a bunch of reviews of Charles Dickens that are fascinating. Even if you don't like Dickens, there's a good collection of his essays called um, All Art is Propaganda. Um, And it's just very obvious that he cared deeply and profoundly and understood like working class poor people. Um, Just this, this, uh, the idea that, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating how people... Think about Orwell sometimes. Uh, Orwell, the guy who during the 1920s said, well, if everyone kills one fascist, soon this problem will be over. And then traveled to Spain to kill fascists. To do that, to do exactly (laughs) that. Yeah. Yeah. And then got shot in the throat after killing some fascists. Anyway, I like Orwell. Um, Not a perfect guy, but really yeah, who, who good is. to read and then misinterpret and then uses an argument for the hey. things that orwell didn't believe
3: exactly yeah yeah that's, <laughs> yeah. The, that's
1: the game that's the game <laughs> that's the game with georgie never write anything <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, <the lesson. laughs> just yeah, yeah just,
3: no, just don't write anything down yeah don't, don't talk write to people. things yeah
1: don't talk to people live in a hut with a rifle and a large dog and shoot anyone who approaches you just stare at that your door
3: it, for the rest of your life mm-hmm, exactly mm-hmm.
1: that's the culture i want um so Jordan's early life uh, occurred during kind of the high point of Cold War mania you know he was born in like 62 Obviously, so he's like living through the worst parts of the Cold War. I mean, I think a lot of people who are like our age may not know this, but like the 80s had some pretty fucking hardcore Cold War paranoia. Like that's why Red Dawn was the movie that it was. Um, Yeah, so Jordan's earliest memories would have included footage from Vietnam and like constant anxiety over nuclear apocalypse. Um, He's not all that much younger than my dad. And like my dad grew up, I know, with a lot of, he's talked about it like a lot of like, realistic fear as a child that the world was going to suddenly end in nuclear hellfire. Um, And, like, I I talk about this a lot, but it really messed the whole generation up pretty bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, in an understandable way. So the threat of total war only seemed to grow more real as Jordan grew older. He was plagued by nightmares of nuclear hellfire for a year and a half, he says. Like, just horrible nightmares.
3: Yeah, his dreams, yeah. He's got a a dream problem.
1: Which, again, you can't, at this point perfectly reasonable. Like, if you grow up hearing that shit, of course you're gonna have nightmares about nuclear hellfire. Like, obviously. Yeah, it's being I have beamed into your brain. sometimes. Yeah, like, yeah. if you're,
3: if you're yeah. you know, there's existential threat constantly, then you're going to have it on your mind pretty constantly.
1: Yeah, it's a kind of PTSD, to be honest. Um, and Toronto Life cryptically writes that Jordan, quote, became depressed and confused about the world's and his own capacity for evil. Which is interesting.
3: That's interesting. Um, uh, what, yeah. So, I wanted to, pop in here so just for more context as we keep going um and his comment about that funeral and how he's going to have that funeral one day um when he was uh i believe 14 years old um he ran he was like into politics and he ran um for uh like election um oh geez i didn't
1: run across this one this is Um, why you're the guest Mm
3: mm-hmm. uh, Age 14. He became is within 13 votes of being elected uh, vice president of the NDP. There's sort of organization there. Um, and the quote from the uh, the the piece is, I won't be happy until I'm elected prime minister. Oh, good. Um, OK, well, there you go. Fine thing to say when you're 14 years old. Uh, I mean, nothing to worry about there.
1: I grew up not all that differently from Jordan Peterson in a different era, but like super bookish, super nerdy. Um, I guess I was kind of raised conservative and he like trumped into it. But like I had those same like dreams of getting into politics and they're the dreams of a, an, an unhealthy young person. And as I got mm-hmm. older, I realized that it was much better to just do tons of drugs and hang out on mountains with my friends. Uh, and that that's yeah, seems, a way yeah, a healthier thing than getting into Also, politics. just like the
3: pr- the pressure of like, I won't be happy until I'm so yeah. powerful.
1: Yeah, the idea that like there, I can't be happy unless I'm the prime minister. I have to be the top boy in the country. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I'll be miserable. Yeah, yeah it's pretty messed um, up.
3: And like any, anyone that like seeks like I want to be the president, that kind of thing later on in life. Like that's uh, you got to be a certain kind of fucked up to think that you have the ability and like that you should be that that
1: person. Yeah. It's a reasonable Um, thing as a kid to be like, I'm going to be the president one day. And then as you grow older and understand what that means, I think reasonable people come to the conclusion of like, no, 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 we need to, you know, Bernie Sanders (laughs) 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 It's a man Mm. who, um, you know, you all know the joke at home. I'm not going to say it. We all know what he did. (laughs) We all know what he did. So, um, yeah, as he grew into a young man, Peterson also grew into a young man. That is to say-
4: Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
1: Good Young jokes. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, all, right, all right. It's all really right. a laugh a minute this week. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Young is uh, the inventor of the term collective unconsciousness, uh, or at least the concept, basically. I think he sometimes called it, a, I don't know. I'm not a great Young expert. Fuck it. Uh, so uh, Peterson also started, but he like, Young's, he has... A, Okay, so Young, there's a couple of big things about him. One of them is this idea that there's like this sort of collective, kind of like a racial memory... Um, which, yes, does feed into some of the things the Nazis were talking about, and so did Jung. We'll talk about that in a bit. And also these ideas that there's, like, these archetypes in in human civilization, like this, like, inherent power of myth that humans are bound by, and there's, like, something almost kind of supernaturally powerful about certain, like, mythal archetypes, the hero and all this kind of stuff. Like, Jung talks about some shit like that. He's a complicated guy. Um, so, Peterson, big fan of Jung. He also starts devouring Nietzsche uh, and a, a Romanian scholar named uh, Mircea Eliad. Uh, she's a scholar of re- religion. Um, and he also starts devouring the work of an American professor called Joseph Campbell, um, whose popular book on the hero myth and society had a profound cultural impact and one that's not dissimilar to Peterson's own work. So his like Hero with a Thousand Faces, I think, is the book, um, kind of winds up inspiring every single Disney movie that's ever been made in your lifetime um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, like, it's yeah. Star
3: Wars beat for beat. It's Star Wars. Beat for beat. And it's it's
1: Dan Dan Harmon's story circle. And it's like, there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot that Campbell got right because he's correct about things that resonate with people. There's a reason that all these very successful storytellers. Yeah. yeah.
3: And the, uh, the archetypes are common. I think the, the, the real thing that resonates with people is like just the arc of that yeah. basic story. You want yeah, a thing, the you arc, need a different yeah. thing. You try to get the thing you want. Hero, you get the thing you actually yeah. need and you sacrifice a thing, you change and so on. Yeah. And so forth. Um, stories, yeah. Yeah. Stories.
1: Yeah. And, and, and Joseph Campbell, it's an important work of scholarship. Campbell's also problematic as fuck, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So okay. these are like the people who Peterson starts to devour and his, it, like they start to Im- influence his mind. Like this is like what creates the, the, the mentality, the mind that Jordan Peterson has as an adult. Now. When we talk about the writers and philosophers who started to form like the core of his growing ideological development, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss at some length what kind of things those writers wound up supporting and believing themselves, because I don't think a lot of people know this. Yeah. Uh, Now, thankfully, uh, a writer named Pankaj Mishra did that for us uh, in a 2018 article for the New York Review of Books titled Jordan Peterson and Fascist Mysticism. Now, Pankaj makes a note of some of the things we've talked about in other episodes of this show, how the rise of fascism in Europe happened alongside the rise of esoteric spiritual movements like theosophy and anthroposophy, which we did an episode of, and like a weird fascination with Asian mysticism, which is kind of like why the Nazis sent expeditions out to the Himalayas and stuff, which a lot of people don't know about that. Mm -hmm. And read about the on an airbay on your own time, or maybe we'll do an episode about it. It's wacky shit. Um, I'm going to quote from that Pankaj Mishra article. Quote, a range of intellectual entrepreneurs from th- theosophists and vendors of Asian spirituality like Vivekanada and D.Z. Suzuki to scholars of Asia like Arthur Whaley and fascist ideologues like Julius Evola who is Steve Bannon's favorite philosopher oh, set up yeah. stalls in the new marketplace of ideas W.B. Yeats um, adjusting Indian philosophy to the needs of the Celtic revival pontificated on the ancient self Jung spun his own variations on this evidently ancestral unconscious. such conceptually foggy categories as spirit and intuition acquired by broad currency, Peterson's favorite words, being and chaos, started to appear in capital letters. Which he also is how he also tends to refer to them. So like, yeah, these yeah. these writers and these intellectual strains are both huge parts of everything Peterson writes today. And they were also big parts of kind of the intellectual stew that starts cooking in Europe really in like it starts before World War One, but it really gets going in the 20s. Um, and these have a big impact on the development of fascism. Now, some of them is coincidental. fascism's happening at the same time. So, of course, like mm-hmm. this is in the fucking air and people pick some of it up. A, a decent number of these philosophers and academics were not fascists. But their work influenced Hitlerist ideas of like racial community, which is not all that different from kind of Jung's concept of of collective unconscious. There's similarities, at least, and Aryan mystic beliefs. Um, quote, by the early 20th century, ethnic racial chauvinists everywhere, Hindu supremacists in India, as well as – and we talked about that in our um, – our episode on, I forget the, the Hindu fascist lady, um, as well as Catholic ultra, yeah, as well as Catholic ultra nationalists in France, were offering visions who uprooted peoples of a rooted organic society in which hierarchies and values had been stable as Carla Poe, points out in New Religions and the Nazis, 2005, political cultists would typically mix pieces of yogic and Abrahamic religions with popular notions of science, or rather pseudoscience, such as concepts of race, eugenics, or evolution. It was this opportunistic amalgam of ideas that helped nourish new mythologies of would-be totalitarian regimes. And obviously, like, Darwinism plays a lot of in this, which oh, is Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, So clearly, uh... and again, I, I'm... yeah.
3: Is like taking sorry. It's like t- taking like these sort of spiritual ideas and combining mm-hmm. them with like biological things, and just like yeah. Peter, Peterson does this a lot of just like he because yeah. he reads he reads everything, uh, yeah. and he has a habit of taking everything he reads and putting mm-hmm. it all together.
1: Which is you uh, know syncretism is um yes. is another kind of hallmark that echoes that of fascism. Um, and it is one of those things, all these thinkers, all of these ideological strains are not inherently fascist, just as Darwinism, like most people today accept Darwinian evolution is basically true and are not fascists. Right. But right. like it had a huge impact on Hitler and you do have to like, I think intelligent people can understand both of those things. Um, yeah. And like said, things where it's
3: like, uh, just, just yeah. like, like the, uh, uh, like Darwinism where it's like, this is a thing that is, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's not a thing that we need to like force or do or like ascribe to or like uh, yeah structure it just society around it just happens uh he has a bad habit of like prescriptive versus like normative claims and like well there yes. this is this he therefore jordan. we should have yeah. to do this yes jordan peterson
1: yeah yeah and we'll we'll be we'll be most of the, these both of these episodes will be about his ideas right and like what the things he yeah. believes and says um now i, I just got over saying because i want to be very clear here like if you like some of these thinkers if you're if you've been inspired by them i'm not saying you're a fascist or they're a fascist that said a lot of the writers peterson specifically loves got real fashy during this period uh mercia mm. eliad who's that romanian <laughs> scholar allied herself yeah. Oh, yeah, fashy as fuck. Uh, Mircea Eliade, um, who's that Romanian scholar, allied herself with the Romanian Iron Guard, who were Romanian Nazis, right? Like, mm. these are the people who, like, they're Nazis. Uh, Carl Jung wrote about the Aryan soul and, unfortunately, the Jewish psyche. Um, and he, oh, was he was initially he was initially very sympathetic. Yeah, neither of those are good. And he was initially sympathetic to the Nazi party. Now, he changed his mind and he did change his mind pretty early on but he was very sympathetic like he got drawn along for a little while there oh yeah um yeah um,
3: that makes sense i mean you can yeah like there are lots of quotes of peterson talking about trump uh yep. where it's like oh mm, you know you know what it is mm-hmm. but you're yeah
1: yep yeah um we'll, it, we'll get yeah Yeah. Joseph Campbell obviously came around later and he never, he was not an open supporter of like a Nazi movement, but once his book, the hero with a thousand faces became a hit and he was being like interviewed by every TV station and whatnot in contemporary America. Like again, he had a very Jordan Peterson like arc to his career. And once he gained prominence, he would regularly drop lines like Marxist philosophy has overtaken the university in America. I did not enjoy that at all. FYI. I really did doing I'm actually kind of doing a Ben Shapiro voice there. Um, Yeah. I didn't it's like just, that. I can't say Marxist <laughs> without thinking Marx. of Ben. Yeah. yeah. These
0: Marxists in, uh, <laughs> everywhere around me.
1: Now, God. it's unfair that I do that for Ben because um, Joseph Campbell was profoundly anti-Semitic. I uh, he did not hated enjoy Jewish that people, at all.
4: I just want that on the record. he hated black people. Mm, sorry, He's just, Sophie. Was, I hate
1: Super this. racist, super anti-Semitic. Mm, like Campbell, yeah. and Campbell kind of kept a lid on that a bit. But like, oh, when you he, like, he was a guy who hated Marxism and also hated Jewish people. And you do get the, th- the feeling that like he kind of agreed with that Nazi idea that Jewish people spread Marxism.
3: Right, right. I mean, if you have both of those and one is kind of kept secret, chances are. Are, that mm-hmm. they're very related and fuel each other.
1: Yeah, he's he was he was super <clears throat> racist as fuck. Um, and yeah, uh, obviously Campbell's racism doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn from him because you kind of have to, especially if you if you're interested in storytelling. You kind of have to read the Hero with a Thousand Faces, even if you disagree with it, because there's a lot of people who do and say that like no, he gets a lot of like, but you still, it's just it's that important of a work. So I'm not saying. Let's yeah, excise no, a, these guys yeah, from our intellectual history. But like Campbell was basically a Nazi. You know?
3: Right. But yeah, but like if you if you if you read his work and then write Star Wars, you're not a Nazi. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, George Lucas. In fact, I would go so far as to say doesn't like Nazis pretty anti-nazi guy It seemed, kind of it does point seem of star like wars like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah
3: despite his uh his uh magic blood religion that he put yeah. in his movies uh but you Look, know he's, he's got, he's got know, some problematic
1: aspects. aspects but i think it's pretty clear even in the prequels that george lucas is saying hey you know what's bad is fascism
3: <laughs> oh yeah it's the one yeah. it's the uh the mm-hmm. problem with the prequels is it's a great idea that is bad
1: <laughs> yeah he just needed an editor um speaking of uh, speaking
2: of editors uh i don't know where. speaking of editors
1: i don't know you you know cody let's talk about something else for just a second how do you feel about school buses full of kids i hope they get to school and home from school oh see i thought you were going to say you hope that they get hit by hellfire missiles from the sky and i was going to tell you that raytheon our sponsor makes the missile guidance chips that that make the targeting of school buses possible
3: Oh, so yeah. what where, where can Are you I where can your mind I support about them? school buses where, now? Yeah, kind mm-hmm. of. I wanna I, I would love to help or get like a promo code for 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 these yeah. chips. Well these yeah, if you chips.
1: actually type in promo code Yemen, uh you can get uh a discount of fifteen percent on your next missile guidance systems thanks to our sponsors, Raytheon. Okay, so I I will be able to afford this with the promo code. Oh, absolutely. Raytheon's goal is making possible for regular people like you and me to fire missiles at school buses in parts of the world that we barely understand
2: this has gone on far too long (laughs) far too long let's hear from
1: raytheon now so so you sold me we're back Ah, okay so yeah Campbell's racism doesn't mean we shouldn't learn stuff from him. Just like uh, the fact that young dabbled in Nazism doesn't mean that he's not worth studying as an intellectual. Uh, Carl Young said a lot of stuff that's really interesting. And I know a lot of people are fans of him. So I'm not again, like I- anyway, the point is that an awful lot of the guys who find themselves writing at length about stuff like ancestral memories and, and archetypes also mm. wound up having Nazi adjacent beliefs. Like a lot of the people who started codifying those lines of thought in human philosophy also wound up being really drawn to the Nazis. And that's something we should keep in mind when other people have similar, feel drawn in similar directions. And these are the folks that Jordan Peterson found himself pulled towards as a young man. And that's worth noting. Now, young adult Jordan Peterson gravitated to clinical psychology. Uh, he went to, uh, or psychology, whatever. He went to McGill University for his undergraduate and his graduate terms. He eventually became a doctor. Um, and during his time in college, he came to grapple with his romantic feelings for a childhood friend, Tammy Roberts. Uh, Jordan and Tammy grew up on the same street. They went to prom together. He invited her to Montreal for Canadian Thanksgiving one year while he was in college. And the two hit it off romantically. They moved in together and like, whatever else you can say of the guy, it seems like he he's like deeply devoted to his wife and she to him. Um, It's unfortunate some of the things that they're devoted to together, but I guess that's good for him. He he fell in love. Um, (laughs) So Peterson proposed to her repeatedly before the two married in 1989. Uh, Tammy later recalled, I thought, if I don't marry Jordan, I'm not going to know what he does with his life and he's going to be an interesting person. Um, She was not incorrect in that. He is an interesting guy. Not incorrect. Mm -hmm. Very interesting person. Uh, I wouldn't marry him to know what happens to him personally, but you yeah. would not marry Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Well, Cody, then you might be too biased to participate in this episode any longer. Oh, uh, so can no. we get Tammy on the line?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, next uh, in Jordan Peterson's life, according to the magazine Toronto Life, quote, Their first child, Michaela, was born in 1992. The family moved to Boston, where Peterson took a job at Harvard. Then then Tammy had Julian. Peterson taught psych at Harvard for six years. When Michaela was seven, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and started showing signs of depression. Tammy, who had become an artist and massage therapist, put her career on hold to care for her daughter. In 1998, Peterson was offered a tenure-track position at the University of Toronto, and the family returned to Canada. At U of T, he was a swashbuckling, beloved professor. Students regarded him as a kind of guru. For people just figuring out who they were and what they wanted to be, he offered a seductive bulwark of certainty. There are perhaps one or two professors you'll run into during your career who completely capture and captivate you, says Christine Brophy, one of Peterson's current grad students, and he was one of them. Now, that Toronto Life article is really interesting, and I think quite good, but its summary of Peterson's early career path is only broadly accurate. It does leave some things out. And we're fortunate that in 2018, University of Toronto professor Bernard Schiff wrote an op-ed for The Star. Its title is, I was Jordan Peterson's strongest supporter. Now I think he's dangerous. We'll be mm. referring to this article a, good, a number of times. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah Important good, article. Good piece. Good piece. Good piece. Good piece. Yeah. Very fascinating. Very
1: fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. And in his article, Bernard gives us an inside look at how Jordan came to teach at the University of Toronto. Quote, I met Jordan Peterson when he came to the University of Toronto to be interviewed for an assistant professorship in the Department of Psychology. His CV was impeccable with terrific references and a pedigree that included a PhD from McGill and a five-year stint at Harvard as an assistant professor. We did not share research interests, but it was clear that his work was solid. My colleagues on the search committee were skeptical. They felt he was too eccentric, but somehow I prevailed. Several committee members now remind me that they agreed to hire him because they were tired of hearing me shout over them. I pushed for him because he was a divergent thinker, self-educated in the humanities, intellectually flamboyant, bold, energetic, and confident, bordering on arrogant. I thought he would bring a new excitement along with new ideas to our department. Professor Schiff, who was then nearing retirement, took Jordan under his wing for the last three years of his career as a full-time professor. Now, Schiff grew to deeply like Peterson, and he pushed for him to receive regular promotions and raises. When Peterson renovated his house, Schiff put Jordan and his family up in his own home. Quote, We had meals together in the evening, and long, colorful conversations. There, away from campus, I saw a man who was devoted to his wife and his children, who were lovely and gentle, and for whom I still feel affection. He was attentive and thoughtful, stern and kind, playful and warm. His wife, Tammy, appeared to be the keel, the ballast, and the rudder, and Jordan ran the ship. Now, it's really clear from this article that Professor Schiff deeply enjoyed Peterson's company and respected him tremendously as a man and a professor. And unfortunately, Schiff feels this now blinded him to some of the less savory aspects of Peterson's personality, which had started to emerge in this period. Schiff laments that he did not give sufficient concern to some of Jordan's teaching tactics. Quote, as the undergraduate chair, I read all teaching reviews. His were, for the most part, excellent and inclu- included eyebrow-raising comments such as, This course has changed my life. One student, however, hated the course because he did not like delivered truths. Curious, I attended many of Jordan's lectures to see for myself. Remarkably, the 50 students always showed up at 9 a.m. and were held in rapt attention for an hour. Jordan was a captivating lecturer. Electric and eclectic, cherry-picking from neuroscience, mythology, psychology, philosophy, the Bible, and popular culture. The class loved him, but as reported by that astute student, Jordan presented conjecture as statement of fact. I expressed my concern to him about this a number of times, and each time Jordan agreed, he acknowledged the danger of such practices, but then continued to do it again and again, as if he could not control himself. He was a preacher more than a teacher. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I mean, he's, like, that's uh, dead on. Um, When you watch one of his lectures, it does seem like that. Uh, Like, yeah, like I said earlier, it's less speeches, less lectures, it's more sermons. Um, Yep. He does, uh, and yeah, choosing the everything. He looks at everything, and he just, like, sort of picks what fits what he wants to say is true and then yeah. puts them all together and and pushes that idea. Um, it's like really easily distilled down to the lobster example, I think. Um, where he's like, oh, yeah, the world should be like this because of over here. Um, but he does it a lot with like, yeah, taking like this religious thing and then this this uh, biological thing and then this thing from pop culture and then just tells you the way things are.
1: The way things are. Yep. And should be. The way and things should, should be. be. It's, you know, one of the things I think that happens with Peterson, and I think it's, I I see it in myself and have to fight against it regularly. If you grow up believing one thing and then make a complete 300 or 180 degree turn to something else as a young adult, there's a tendency that you have to fight against to believe, well, maybe I don't have to question the things I believe now because I already questioned, like I already overturned my entire belief system. So clearly like I have found truth and that can lead you to cherry pick things that only confirm the things that you've come to believe. When when the reality is, and no one's perfect at this, right? Like, and we yeah. all choose to not examine certain things just because you can't always be examining every aspect of your beliefs because otherwise you'll go fucking crazy. Sometimes you just yeah. have to be like, yeah, you know, I, it's, it's fine. Like, but you should always be finding yourselves yourself challenged by things, which is is different from saying everybody needs to be debating about things because some things shouldn't be debated. Um, But you should always be like seeking out things that like challenge or complicate your understanding of the world um, because the world's complicated. Um, Anyway, so whether or not Preacher is a fair description, Jordan grew obsessed with belief and particularly why people believe things. And most particularly like why people who had supported terrible regimes fascist and communist totalitarian regimes that killed a lot of people why they believed so strongly in the things that they were doing um which is obviously like I think is a great thing to 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 investigate yeah that's my whole life what too draws yeah. people
3: to authoritarianism and things like exactly that. Yeah. uh in
1: 1999 he published his first book maps of meaning a dense 600 page academic treatise on the architecture of belief which is a great term um he's Decent titler. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, Maps of Meaning shows a Campbellian fascination with the hero myth and the the things that cultures tend to find heroic, as well as a great deal of Jungian interest in like a kind of sort of collective racial unconsciousness and the reoccurring influence of myth and tradition in human society. The book also evinced an obsession with the ideas of order and chaos. I'm going to read a quote from it here. Terrible, chaotic forces lurk behind the facade of the normal world. These forces are kept at bay by the maintenance of social order. The reign of order is insufficient, however, because order itself becomes overbearing and deadly if allowed unregulated or permanent expression. The actions of the hero constitute an antidote to the deadly forces of chaos and to the tyranny of order. The hero creates order from chaos and reconstructs the order when necessary, that order when necessary. His actions simultaneously ensure that novelty remains tolerable and that security remains flexible. Maps of Meaning. Jordan B. Peterson. So, Maps of Meaning includes some fascinating insight into Jordan's own life. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote from a write-up in The New Yorker here. Peterson has a way of making even the mildest pronouncement sound like the dying declaration of a political prisoner. In Maps of Meaning, he traced this sense of urgency to a feeling of fraudulence that overcame him in college. When he started to speak, he would hear a voice telling him, You don't believe that? That isn't true. To ward off mental breakdown, he resolved not to say anything unless he was sure he believed it. This practice calmed the inner voice, and in time it shaped his rhetorical style, which is forceful but careful.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, you can see him, He, he's a, mm-hmm. uh, he's very verbose, but he is a very deliberate speaker.
1: Yeah, he is. He's a great speaker. Like, just yeah. objectively, like I'm, like you and I are both people who talk for a living. Like, he's objectively good at public speaking. Yeah, he's speaking. very good yeah. at it,
3: it's captivating.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. He'd make, a, he'd make a great preacher. <laughs> yeah, he would make a great preacher. We'll talk about that later. So (laughs) the book was well-received by a number of professional smart people. One reviewer I read who was a psychologist of, I think, some sort had a hard time defining Peterson's book as a work of, like, sociology or psychology or, like, neuroscience or whatever, but he recommended it to people. And this was not a universal opinion. So I want to note a lot of professional people in and around Peterson's field think this is a great book. There's also a a sizable number who disagree with that statement. Uh, Dr. Paul Taggart, a Canadian philosopher and cognitive scientist, wrote this about the book in Psychology Today. Its emphasis on religious myth and heroic individuals provides a poor blueprint for understanding the origins of totalitarianism and an even poorer guide to overcoming its evils. Um, and and Dr. Taggart described Maps of Meaning as murky in the sense that it was dark and gloomy with frequent emphasis on suffering rather than on the joys of love, work, and play. The book is also murky in the second sense, which is like the sense of, yeah, it's less meandering and disjointed than uh, video than his videotape lectures. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a
3: little muddy, yeah. kind of like, it's uh, a little hard to parse. It's
1: sometimes. hard to parse and follow. People will, like, it's very dense. It takes a lot of reading. Some people say that because it's so... Brilliant. And some people will be like, he he could have cut a couple of hundred pages out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
3: yeah. It's very, very dense and long.
1: Yeah. Now, Dr. Taggart condensed the book's main arguments into four points. Um, And these are what he thinks that Peterson is getting at in the book. And he's smarter than I am. Uh, Number one, myths are culturally universal. Number two, myths are the psychological origin of morality. Number three, myths are the philosophical basis for morality. And number four, myth-based morality grounds political judgments about totalitarian states. Um, so you can see some things to argue with there and some things that like I would certainly agree that myth-based morality grounds political judgments about totalitarian states. Um I would also say that, like, I don't think myths are the psychological origin of morality or the philosophical basis for morality. I think they do influence a lot of people's morality. Uh, I would also disagree with the statement that they're culturally universal, which Dr. Taggart will disagree with, too. But we'll talk about that a bit later.
3: Okay, yeah. There's a lot of – because, like, it's just very, like, forceful and certain. There's no – like, a lot of things that Jordan says even are just like, well, okay, that – that kind of relates to this, but it, it's not like a universal rule. It's not the way the world is.
1: Yeah, he's um, like. Got a it often real... seems
3: like he's trying to like create a religion or like create like a worldview. Um, yeah, that explains everything.
1: And he's basing it on these myths, and he's basing it on a specific subset of myths from a specific chunk of the world that happens to be the chunk of the world he's familiar with, and right. ignoring all of the different myths and cultures that actually disagree with a lot of what he's saying, and then just saying, no, every culture basically believes this stuff. Yeah, um, he, mean, he means Western yeah.
3: culture, even though he doesn't necessarily yes. know that he means that.
1: Yeah. Now, it, it's perhaps not surprising that according to Professor Schiff, who's again the guy, his min, his old mentor who came to worry you know, very much about his influence, it, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that this guy says Peterson's personality grew more intense as the years. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. grew by, darker and angrier. Now, uh, Peterson's student reviews were always exceptional, and he earned a position on the U of T's tenure track, but he also showed peculiar signs of non-academic ambitions. Jordan started a clinical practice, which is fine, but his experiences there inspired him to create a series of neuropsychological tests, basically personality tests, to predict academic and corporate performance. This led him to create a product called the Self-Authoring Suite, an online self-help program that he sold access to. Toronto Life notes that the program was was, quote, designed to walk participants through creating a sort of mini autobiography then writing what they want their futures to be like. Tammy, his wife, served as a guinea pig. I outlined eight goals that I had no idea I was going to outline, she says. But it puts you in a dream state. And when you write your goals, they come from somewhere inside you that you hadn't scripted. I told him this would be the most important thing he ever did. That's a little weird, right? It's a little state, personality. personality. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A yeah. Getting,
3: getting a little. Uh, again, it's the mysticism, it's the spirituality, it's mm-hmm. the, uh, like, the. The deeper stuff that seems... Um, yeah, it, it can't yeah. be as
1: simple as like, yeah, no, you know, outlining your goals and, and f- talking, you know, outlining some aspects of your past and thinking about what you f- want your future to be can be helpful if you're kind of in like a confused or a muddled state. No, no, you're in a dream state and something inside you comes up like, okay. Yeah, right, it's well. like, yeah, you're, you talk yeah. to the universe. It's like, well, no, you just like, you assess your life and you try to like... We like, all do it, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> I do it when I'm running like a couple of times a week. I don't go into a dream state. Like, it is helpful to, like, cut out distractions and, like, but anyway, whatever. Peterson (laughs) says that about 10,000 students have gone through this program, that it decreased dropout rates by 25% and raised GPAs by 20%. I've seen no verification of these numbers outside of Jordan B. Peterson himself. Uh, And as far as I'm aware, he never put his self-authoring suite up to any kind of rigorous outside testing. I will say that an awful lot of people who've used it rave about it. You can find tons of very positive reviews. And in fact, it's hard to find negative ones, probably because Because the kind of people who buy it are people who are already into what Jordan B. Peterson has to say. But that said, a lot of people say it's great. Um, One customer wrote that in her view, the program allowed you to identify the different personalities within yourself that often conflicted and to integrate them into a new and better person. Which I do found a little worrying because a a lot of Scientology and also if you watch the new show about Nexium, the Keith Raniere cult who we also did episodes on, they talk a lot about integrations. Anyway, I always find that a little weird. But Yeah, yeah. It was it also it only cost like 15 bucks. So I, I would not want to be like saying that he was doing the same thing Scientology was doing because it seems like a pretty affordable. thing, Right. It's, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that does I, that always strikes me as a little weird. Um, and I found another review on a site called The Deep Dish that explains the attitude uh, Peterson's $15 course conveys. And this is by someone who took it. Quote. When the oxygen mask drops down on an airplane, you better fasten yours before you try to be a hero, because people who've passed out from hypoxia are not known for being particularly useful. We've all heard the safety briefing so many times that it bores us to tears, but we don't always apply this principle to life more broadly. If you want to do good in the world, you have to put your own house in order first. In his clinical practice, Peterson has observed that many people don't actually have psychological problems. They have problems in living. That's a meaningless statement. Um, no, right, right. <laughs> like a completely meaningless statement, but I do want to get into what this guy says about like oxygen masks and shit. Cause obviously, yes, if, if, if your plane depressurizes, you should put on your own oxygen mask first because you will be unconscious and unable to help people. Yeah, But I think a- generalizing this, cause, cause this is a big thing Peterson says, you have to fix yourself before you help other people. And I disagree with that profoundly. Um, and I think that a better comparison would be to think like an EMT thinks. So if you arrive on the semen as an emergency in the, as an EMT, and they'll tell you this in training, your first priority is your own safety. Not because you matter more than anyone else, because but because if you get hurt, then all you've done is make the problem worse. And what that means, it doesn't mean you don't help, but it does mean that like, oh, there's a car crash that involved a power line. I need to make sure that I'm not going to like get electrocuted. Like I need to make sure this is actually safe for me to enter. Otherwise, I'm making the situation worse. But my goal is still to to get in there and help people. I just have to make certain that I am physically safe first so that I'm not making the problem worse. But the whole thing I'm doing is attempting to actually provide aid to people. Right. Um, anyway, I think that's a more useful. Yeah. It's if you're not, going to like, I mean, make, I mean, yeah,
3: <laughs> it's his game. It's what, I mean, it's, it's reductive. It's called it his game, but like that's that analogy. It He takes these situations in these analogies yeah. and these, these little examples. And then, uh, says that this is how all of society is yeah um and that's like really uh a huge leap and pretty irresponsible it's, it's the lobster thing yeah. um but also like i don't know if you if you're a person who's like uh what if everybody uh was able to go to the doctor um without yeah. having to pay like copays and premiums and all that bullshit um, that doesn't mean that the person suggesting that needs to live a perfect life and have all of their no. problems fixed out that like this, this example is uh, so wrong um, yeah. and misleading. It's uh, and, and it, it, it things like that uh, point me more towards yeah. like, oh, well, that's insidious. What he's doing is insidious. Yeah.
1: And it would be one thing if he was like, there's different kinds of emergencies. Some of them are like, you know, when an airplane depressurizes and you have to take care of yourself first, otherwise you'll be unconscious. Others are like a fire in a house. And if you're a firefighter, you might have to endanger yourself in order to do your job because that's sometimes what we do. And like, yeah, it's – yeah. But no, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of the way he thinks, which is like find one like kind of one example that if you deliver it well in a speech will sound really compelling to people because you're comparing it to something in the real world. Um, but like if you think about it for more than a couple of seconds, you realize like, well, that actually can't be generalized to any. Yeah, that extent. like yeah. so you
3: can't you can't like try to improve society unless you're perfect, which is impossible. Like who who can claim that? Yeah, that they that they are they have nothing left to work on with themselves or anything like that. It's like, well, come on, man.
1: Yeah. So in this course, this self-authoring suite, Peterson explains that his time as a clinical psychologist has taught him to start client sessions by asking a series of questions about a patient's family, physical health, friends, drug use, etc. If his clients are having issues in any of these key areas, they cannot be thriving psychologically. This is the origin of his famous clean your room line. And obviously it's not bad advice to tell people to take care of themselves. You should take care of yourself. But Jordan being Jordan, he immediately takes things beyond simple self-care. The self-authoring suite represents Represents the first salvo in what I think we could call Jordan Peterson's war on chaos. Quote, The way Peterson sees it, there's a constant struggle between chaos and order within society and within each individual. Even if you don't believe this literally, it's a useful metaphor. To make yourself strong and focused, you have to do battle with the dragons of chaos. Of course, dragons are big and scary, so you better start out small. Peterson talks a lot about fighting dragons, and he does actually will sometimes say like, no, I'm I'm speaking pretty literally. Um, Oh,
3: Yeah. His, uh, his draw, some of his diagrams in that book are something to behold. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the way Peterson frames things, though, is very, seems very reasonable. If your life feels out of control, you focus fix uh, first on f- taking care of small, immediate needs and goals. And this builds your confidence and it'll help you, you deal with larger and larger things and help you order your own minds that you can accomplish greater tasks. Nothing sinister in that. In fact, I'd say it's good advice. Yeah. Um, but the focus on chaos and on life as a constant battle between order and chaos, that seems kind of sinister to me, especially given what Jordan B. Peterson thinks about chaos, because in his mind, It is an inherently feminine trait. See, New York Mm. Times writer Nellie Bowles talked to Jordan about this during a deep and very good profile she wrote on the man, a very funny profile, because I think Nellie has his number. And when she (laughs) questioned him about chaos being a feminine trait, he responded, you know, you can say, well, isn't it unfortunate that chaos is represented by the feminine? Well, it might be unfortunate, but it doesn't matter because that's how it's represented. It's been represented like that forever and there are reasons for it. You can't change it. It's not possible. This is underneath everything. And if you change those basic categories, people wouldn't be human anymore. They'd be something else. They'd be transhuman or something. We wouldn't be able to talk to these new creatures. To which I say, a lot of people used to worship volcanoes, Jordan. That is... We don't really do that so much anymore. Now we're like, they're rocks full of explosives and we should get away when they... Yeah, like we wild
3: things out unbelievable yeah. and like also like look at society how yeah. it's like why do you think that women are categorized like that in your mind who is who because is doing the, the fucking greek there? goddess
1: of discord was eris and therefore also, chaos is always feminine yeah
3: right like uh like men are order and women are chaos uh women have a, a regular menstrual cycle
1: that's pretty fucking yeah. ordered uh Whereas like, men were me- largely responsible for the partitioning of Poland, which was pretty chaotic. <laughs> pretty chaotic. There's just like so many examples,
3: and like you can look and like this is Jordan's game that he won't let anybody else play. Yeah, I can look at lobsters and say lobsters do this because of the resources. Therefore, society has to be measured like that. I can point yeah. to women menstruating, uh, and be like, "No, women are order. You f- fucking dumb shit." And yeah. he like, yeah, he can't, he can't uh, fathom that because. In his mind, there's no nuance unless it's him. I don't know. It's very frustrating. What a weird, yeah. frustrating man.
4: Uh, do you want to know what's not frustrating, Cody? Though
3: I would, yes, yes I would like to know that. Actually, yes.
4: This fantastic uh, transition to ads that Robert's about to do. Robert,
3: <laughs> yeah, do it.
4: Oh wow, nailed it. Sad.
3: I liked it.
1: I did not. We're back before we move on. I I was just quoting from that Nellie Bowles um, uh, New York Times article, and I I think it's really funny um, because there's lines in it like Marxism is resurgent. Mr. Peterson says looking ashen and stricken. I say it seems unnecessarily stressful to live like this. He tells me life is stressful. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, she, she, her interpretation seems to be like, you are deeply miserable, and it's because of these horrible things you believe, and you seem, they don't seem to be making you happy. And Jordan B. Peterson is incapable of understanding or taking seriously what she's saying because she's a woman and thus an agent of chaos. Yep, that's might beautiful. Say. Uh,
3: um, it's frustratingly beautiful um, is what yeah. it is. <laughs> like, God. you don't
1: have to like, be this stressed out you know, all the time, You know, George. Mr. Peterson, this isn't, this doesn't need to be your life. Mm-hmm. Yes, he he can. He considered one of his big issues is that he thinks that um the current guy in charge of Canada is basically like a a quasi Marxist. And it's like, actually, if you look at it, Canada is basically one gigantic mining and natural uh, gas uh, company with like a social safety net strapped (laughs) to it so that people don't notice that it exists primarily to extract resources from the world. Um, It's the furthest thing from Marxism possible. It just has a good healthcare system. But like, let's not.
3: Yeah, as, yeah. yeah also Jeremy like he's okay, so not gonna
1: get in on that <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. mr <laughs> mr bumblebee i i gotta i gotta point out also like his whole thing of like if you change this if you change that uh, what is it is it tra- is it is it a tra- now you're a transhuman or what it's like well you're yeah. you're you're like you're what you're doing is you're fighting against the idea of evolution yeah and, like a like did like when when humans got to where we are, was that like, oh, you did it, you're perfect, never change, never, yeah. never move on from this. And
1: I don't yeah, think he the- would say that. Um, yeah, the reality is if you were to take like anyone from 500 years ago and put them in the modern world, they would probably die of an embolism, shrieking in horror at the sight of concrete, like just because the amount of it would be so baffling to their fucking brains. It would like yeah, the, the world would make no make sense. Concrete, the air would taste different.
3: chaos. Yeah. Yeah. The they wouldn't the be dirt. able to
1: understand people speaking what is essentially their language because our, our idioms have changed so much like it would be a nightmare for them because people are prof- changed deeply every couple. Generation yeah, col- anyway. culture
3: changes constantly, and like, like, deal you know, with it, Describing Jordan. is like,
1: you fucking baby, I-
3: yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's like- so yeah, uh, uh. It's good stuff. Um, Now, when one reads a lot of Peterson's interviews, they get the sense that Jordan spent the bulk of his career studying humanity for tips on how to reach and influence people. I don't know the degree to which this was a conscious choice that he made, but he did it. And in his second book, which we'll discuss later, Peterson writes that during his time as a psychologist, he worked with a client diagnosed with paranoia. He learned that paranoid patients were, quote, almost uncanny in their ability to detect mixed motives, judgment, and falsehood. This inspired him to become even more committed to saying only what he meant You have to listen very carefully and to tell the truth if you're going to get a paranoid person to open up to you. He quickly realized that this basic tactic worked on the broader population, which helps explain why so many of his students treated him like a preacher. Over years and years of rigorously studying belief, he got good at making people believe what he said. Um, now, outside of work, in his own life, Jordan's home came to showcase a growing fascination with authoritarianism. He collected Soviet and communist propaganda, and he covered his walls with it to an extent that I think even the most dedicated communists I know would find weird. Like <laughs> it's so weird. The amount there is so it's, weird. It's too like, much of any decoration, to be yeah, honest.
3: It's yeah, it's and like that's you know, and he's the kind of guy who like you'd think would be like, oh, well, your environment affects like your mood and things yeah. like that, and like. How do you live in that space? Yeah, it's so bleak.
1: All of your walls are men shooting each other and hoisting red flags. Like, of course, you think Marxism uh, is coming for yeah, you. It's yeah,
3: it's wild. And also, like, just like the 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 motive yeah. behind doing that is like, if you're interested, if you're like fascinated by like the history of Nazism because you want to like find out what they think and like fight it. If you want to sure. fight. Not, you're not I, gonna like put me. Na- yeah. Right. You're not gonna no. put Nazi shit everywhere. I have no
1: Nazi propaganda on my walls, Cody. Yeah, that's normal. That, I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad. And like, I it's, do it's, have one reproduction Wehrmacht coat because it's a solid coat, but I only wear it when I'm hiking alone. Anyway, <laughs> it's a good
3: coat. <laughs> it's, it's a good, it's good
1: coat. Look, I'm not gonna fucking. The coat's not the problem. Nobody hates the Nazis because their coats were good.
3: Yeah, there was not a <laughs> coat problem. There. Doesn't
1: have a swat sticker on it. It's just a coat. Anyway. So uh, uh, Peterson grew increasingly uh, also like during this kind of period where he's becoming darker and more weird and radical. Uh, Professor Schiff notes that he grew increasingly interested in fringe health treatments. Quote, he was preoccupied with alternative health treatments, including fighting off the signs of aging as they appear on the skin and one time, even shamanic healing practices where to my great surprise and distress, he chose to be the shaman himself. He did all of that with the same great fervor and commitment. It's a little bit weird. Choosing well, me also know, a little bit know, appropriative. I don't know. You know, know. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Peterson also struggled with depression. Now, this had been a lifelong battle for him, dating back to his youthful nightmares about atomic annihilation. But despite growing wiser and more successful, and despite his supportive family and his insights into the human mind, he could not rest his mind away from darkness. He described it as like being impaled, quote, by a dead, black, and frozen tree. Now we don't have tremendous detail about his family life, but however this impacted his behavior, his wife eventually threatened to leave him if he didn't take antidepressants, and he agree- eventually agreed to do so. Um, so it must have been pretty—he must have been pretty unpleasant to that be around.
3: Sounds pretty, yeah. it Sounds like he's
1: doing. It sounds not like an so issue. Great.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And now, he's, already, pro- he's
3: already intense. Like to he's picture, already pretty, like, pretty your, like
1: difficult to hang with. Yeah. Yeah. So, the pills came with side effects. Jordan felt sluggish. He found himself collapsing into sleep for hours at a time. Somehow, he still managed to keep up his prodigious rate of productivity, but the demons in his head seemed to have a noteworthy impact on his personality. Professor Schiff writes that, as the years went on, quote, his interest in political issues became more apparent. We disagreed about most things, but I don't ask of my friends that we agree. What was off-putting was his tendency to be categorical about his positions, reminiscent of his lectures where he presented personal theories as absolute truths. I rarely challenged him. He over Overwhelmed challenges with volumes of information that were hard to process and evaluate. He was more forceful than I, and he had a much quicker mind. Also, again, evocative of what I saw in the classroom, he sometimes appeared to be in the thrall of his ideas and would not or could not constrain himself and self monitor what he was saying.
3: Yeah, maybe that not sounds great about right. for
1: a professor. Yeah, mm. I'm gonna say not great for a priest either. Um,
3: not great, that's no, not just like not great.
1: <laughs> yeah, just not great. Uh, now, the chief political Uh, The chief political issue that came to increasingly dominate Jordan Peterson's life and concern was the idea and a fear about political correctness. This seems to have started with one of his clients at his his psychology practice who'd gotten in trouble at work over her resistance to political correctness talk at work. And I'm going to quote from the New York Times here. He says one patient had to be part of a long email chain over whether the term flip chart could be used in the workplace, since the word flip is a pejorative for Filipino. She had a radical left boss who was really concerned with equality and equality of outcome and all these things and diversity and inclusivity and all these buzzwords and she was subjected to. She sent me the email chain, 30 emails about whether or not the flip chart was acceptable, Mr. Peterson says. So he was radicalized, he says, because the radical left wants to eliminate hierarchies, which he says are the natural order of the world. Now, it's a bit of a jump from... I'll, I'll grant you that people are like concerned about calling something a flip chart. Kind of dumb because the word flip has a long series of meanings that have nothing to do with racism towards Filipinos. If yeah. it were like, yeah, like I whatever. Mean, yeah. Yes. That's there, probably there are, other, exa- being there are other
3: examples uh, that yeah. I won't say because we're not, I'm not, not going to say that. Um, yeah. th- but like, it's, a, it's just a term. It's a word. It's got many, many meanings. And to jump from that, uh, silly, like arguably silly thing. To the Marxists are trying to like destabilize the world and like all of his all his stuff is like come on man what is yeah.
1: And the idea, I mean, I actually do want to eliminate hierarchies, but just the idea that because, like, you're maybe over concerned about uh, uh, whether or not a specific term is uh, offensive means that you want to eliminate all hierarchies. Like, I'm going to guarantee you whatever person, like, this radical left boss was actually probably, like, more or less a Democrat who uh, really supported a, a hierarchical Democratic Party and stuff and was just overly worried about political yeah. correctness.
3: Yeah. Also, like he's talked about, it's uh, I don't know if we're going to get into this more, but like he has talked about uh, feeling uh, boxed in, and like so, uh, I believe the quote is like, so, you know, everyone sort of claims that I'm some sort of right winger, but it couldn't be farthest from the truth." He denies that he's like right wing, um, but his yeah, his primary thing is being obsessed with hierarchies and reinforcing those hierarchies. That's like the yep. definition of it. Yeah, that's um, the thing he loves most. It's like definitely the definitionally like that's what that's your right wing Yeah, it's, it it stuff like that whenever i hear stuff like that like pings me is like oh you're you're just lying.
1: Yeah, you just You're too, you're liar, too smart
3: Jordan. to to not know yeah. that that's ridiculous.
1: Well, and we'll talk about it cuz he he has a lot of vested interest in defining himself as someone who's in like the middle even though mm-hmm. he's again very right wing and there's a reason he's doing that. Yes. Um, he's a classical liberal, i'm sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in 2014, Dr. Peterson took his growing frustration with political correctness and finally applied his famous academic rigor to the issue. Uh, He carried out a study, which he uh, conducted with graduate student Christine Brophy, who we heard from a little earlier. Um, And this study was initially about the relationship between political belief and personality. It turned, however, into a study of so-called politically correct people. Peterson and Brophy developed a list of 200 statements from... Safe spaces are necessary to promote diversity of perspective, and feathered headdresses should be banned at music festivals. Too, police brutality is racial in nature. Now, they use these questions to develop a questionnaire they could use to quiz people about how much they agreed with each statement. They questioned two groups of people, eventually totaling more than 1,300 respondents. According to Toronto Life, Peterson and Brophy concluded that political correctness exists in two forms, which they call PC egalitarianism and PC authoritarianism. Simply put, PC egalitarians are classic liberals who advocate for more democratic governance and equality. PC authoritarians are, according to Brophy, the ones now relabeled as social justice warriors. Both share a high degree of compassion. Extreme compassion, they believe, can lead to difficulty assessing right from wrong. It can also mean the forgiveness of all failures and transgressions by people viewed as vulnerable. Any personality trait to an extreme is passed. Pathological, Brophy says. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I do have some issues with some of the questions that they're listing here. For example, safe spaces are necessary to promote diversity of perspective. I don't know that I would agree to any particular level with that. I would say that if, if people, my, what I would say is if people feel like they need safe spaces in a school for whatever reason, I'm fine with them having that uh, and and that I, if they find it valuable, sure, like why not? And I think most people are kind of in that. I don't think most people who don't have an issue with like the idea of a safe space on campus would say they're necessary to promote diversity of perspective. They'd say, oh yeah, if people need that, why not? Like there's plenty yeah. of room in the campus, yeah. yeah let's, let's have it, let's sure. Have yeah, a thing. It's like I feel safe talking about a thing, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of room for that in in the like. It seems like the questionnaire is kind of designed to get people to respond in an authoritarian way. Like feathered headdresses should be banned at music festivals. Should they be banned? I wouldn't say they should be banned. Is it fucked up for like like white kids to like wear Native American headdresses? Oh yeah, that's that's messed up. They shouldn't do that banned yeah at a music yeah. like People no I, I don't we're not gonna the, say that the, like the second thing will not I, yeah most will not be like oh yeah
3: ban them ban them everywhere yeah like, that is that is written to elicit the kind of uh, result yeah. that
1: he wants and like I spend a lot of time reading, like especially on Twitter, like Indigenous folks talking about stuff like this and why they find it offensive. And all of them are saying like, yeah, or like they tend to be saying like, don't do this; it's messed up. They're not saying it should be you, you should get kicked out of a music festival. For, yeah, like, they don't like even, we need to they're write not a even law pointing banning that out. like, like
3: that's no. Yeah,
1: they're uh, trying also, to explain like why it's offensive, which is exactly. different from saying ban it at music festivals. um Um, it's
3: explaining these things and like why 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 do people want to say space why did it why does this why does this not saying like we need to write laws to require them or like we need to mm -hmm. ban x or y um it's also interesting let's explain uh, to
1: people why this is messed up yeah
3: yeah um, yeah the quote about like the they have too much compassion and like are prone too much to forgiveness or something
1: yes we'll yeah okay that's a big line in his
3: were obsessed with canceling people
1: hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk a lot about Jordan B. Peterson and what he thinks about compassion and how it's bad and how okay. that might relate to some things. Other groups of people have said in the past before doing very bad things that Jordan B. Peterson claims to know about and want to prevent. It's Good. interesting. Good relation between that. I got a lot of hardness. Yeah. Yeah. So the article goes on to note that like most psychologists in his field, Dr. Peterson believes there are five major personality traits, extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness and neuroticism. These traits are supposed to be universal across different cultures. All of this sounds problematic as hell and really dumb to me. I'm not a psychologist. I have trouble believing that that's true because that all seems like fucking nonsense, like that you can you can separate shit out like that. Like, but I don't know. I don't. Like this stuff anyway, so maybe I'm right, just an right. idiot. But I think that sounds <laughs> dumb as hell. If that's something all psychologists believe, maybe psychology's kind of stupid. Maybe it's um, to yeah, a, like, maybe the it's kind of dumb. Yeah. Um, that said, yeah, uh, I find a lot of what's written about all this to be low key terrifying. Like this quote from Toronto Life. These traits have both biological and cultural origins, and, as Peterson is fond of saying, the biological factors maximize in places, like Scandinavia, that have strenuously tried to flatten out the cultural differences. Biology is, therefore, in a sense, destiny, no matter how much people may want to deny it. Now, oh, this is all dressed. And again, I'm not saying this is what all psychologists believe, because I don't think that's true. <laughs> like, yeah, I think no, this is don't what think, Jordan Peterson is. Yeah,
3: I think he's a little outside the norm there.
1: Yeah, I think this is what bell curve motherfuckers believe. Um, And it's all dressed up in pop psych terms and academic verbiage, but Peterson's right on the urge of arguing about biological essentialism. He is arguing that this is the same strain of thought that leads to like the bell curve shit where you talk about how black IQ was inherently lower. And if you start talking about that shit, you wind up having the kind of questions about whole races that lead to real bad things going down. Yeah, um, he's got tons of IQ stuff.
3: Uh, yeah. A lot of Molyneux kind of things. And that's, that's yes. something that I think he's never really addressed of, like, if he doesn't you believe get, this and this and this and this, yeah. what's the next thing? What's the logical His, result to this way of thinking?
1: He will always say, like, no, no, no. Like, I think people are, like, I don't think there's any intelligence difference in, like, men and women and stuff like that. But, like, then he will make arguments where, like, but this leads you to a conclusion that's kind of different from the thing that you're saying.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. And like how to deal with, uh, there's a uh, one of the worst things I think he uh, talks about. Uh, is about IQ and how, uh, because the military uh, doesn't let people in the military uh, under a certain IQ, that yeah. means that they cannot, function in society they cannot contribute to society because we don't let them in the military uh and he says, so these two claims he says therefore that's the most horrifying thing i've ever heard um he doesn't go further than that he doesn't explain why but he talks about how if we if they can't contribute to society citation needed uh Mm -hmm. that and we can't pay them like universal basic income thing like that doesn't work either again citation needed therefore and then trailing off
1: yeah, yeah, we need to gas them in trucks. Yeah, like um, what do
3: you do? What do you do with these people? Um it's just like yeah. these like X is true even though it's not, Y is true yeah. even though it's
1: not. Therefore, you
3: figure out the Z for yourself. I'm not and gonna it's, say like,
1: it. It's clear, as with everything that Jordan Peterson's wrong about, that he has no real experience with people who have, you know. Uh, what you would call like IQs lower than that threshold. Again, I worked in this field. I worked with particularly a number of kids with Down syndrome who would not have been able to join the military. Um, But also who were physically healthy and who were perfectly capable of doing like we would get them we would help them get jobs working and like like making sandwiches and stuff like that and they could do things and they needed some help they would live in like a semi-independent assisted living sort of facility when they became adults but they would do jobs they would have friends they would contribute to society they're perfectly capable like there are there are a very small number of people who because of a mix of like physical and, and mental you know like stuff like can't like need pretty much total help. Like I did work with some of those kids, but most of them and part of the goal of like a good program helping those people is to find a way for them to be a part of society and be around and and, and live with and contribute with everyone yeah. else and enrich because there's no reason that things, they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah,
3: exactly. Um, And Just also they like can't putting the requirement the <laughs> on people of like either yeah. you contribute to society in the way that society's decided that you contribute to it or you're out yeah. Um, is also ridiculous. Yeah. It's also um, fucked up, yes. But also, You're like, not saying you know, that people you,
1: need to have a job to contribute yeah, to society, um, but, but, but like, also, like,
3: in ter- yeah. like comparing people, like you can't get into the military, therefore X and Y. You know who uh, wasn't allowed in the military? The president
1: of the United States. Well, he had bone, sh- bone spurs, he?
3: Yeah, um, and I don't see uh, Peterson talking about how if you have bone spurs and you can't, you know, it's it's like everything he says. It's just like a wild, disgusting sort of uh, approach to yep. how humans are.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't like it. (laughs) Nope. Neither do I. So in 2016, Canada started to debate over a bill, C-16, that would expand the country's human rights law by adding gender identity and gender expression to the list of things employers in the government can't discriminate against. This would have meant that college professors like Dr. Peterson would have had to refer to non-binary and trans students by their preferred pronouns. Now, obviously, this was just one aspect of the law, which would have also done stuff like, you know, help make it harder to deny trans people apartments or like the people, or yeah, exactly. All, yeah, yeah, all the yeah. things that
3: you... you... You don't want people to be discriminated for so they can live their fucking lives.
1: Yes. But to Dr. Peterson, the thought that he might be forced to refer to someone by their chosen pronoun, um, even if he didn't like that they'd chosen that pronoun, that's all that mattered. That's all this law was to Mm -hmm, him. mm -hmm. Jordan started recording YouTube videos outlining his resistance to the law. He attracted a following, and eventually a very massive one. He started engaging in highly publicized debates, which his followers tended to see as him crushing and destroying his ideological enemies. He argued that the bill was a serious infringement of freedom of speech and soon reached an audience of millions of non-Canadians. I'm not sure to what extent this was purposeful, but Peterson's stand came at a perfect moment as the simmering culture war between right and left in the U.S. started to reach a boil. Soon there were protests against Peterson. His supporters showed up to counter. There were fights and arrests and media coverage. And, you know, we talked about George Lincoln Rockwell. Like, that's the Mm. best thing for these kinds of people is media coverage and fights and stuff. So the dean of the University of Toronto sent Peterson a letter saying that his refusal to use people's pronouns revealed discriminatory intentions. Which I would argue is accurate. The letter went on to warn him that the impact of your behavior runs the risk of undermining your ability to conduct essential components of your job as a faculty member
3: and like an educator, like it's like from an educator, like, like you're yeah. educating people, and someone's like, please, my uh, refer to me as she instead of he, and then he says he. That's like a hostile learning environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're just being a dick, which is not to say that kids shouldn't be challenged and like it, and, and deal with ideas that are uncomfortable in school. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. want to, but it also it does mean that like one of the basic things you should expect from a college is that they're not going to be shitty to you personally for no good reason because yeah. that's bad and you shouldn't do that to students. It's it not okay. It kind
3: of makes you not want to go to the lecture anymore. It makes you <laughs> like, not want to go
1: to the lecture. It contributes to problems of suicidal nature. Like yeah. it's just bad and it's not justified and if like you don't have an inherent right to be a teacher if you're going to be a teacher we have the right to say you shouldn't do certain things like hit on your students even if you're both adults because it's a college Mm -hmm. colleges like you have the right as an adult as a 35 year old phd you have the right to date a 19 year old absolutely legally you have that right as a 35-year-old college professor, if you date a 19-year-old student, you will probably get in trouble, because we've decided that makes for a bad learning environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, makes right?
3: sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think he would be okay. I mean, he's got other issues with that, yeah. so, but, like, that specific thing, and, like, yeah. keeping your door open when you have uh, meetings with female students and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Rule. But whatever, it's nice. Whatever.
1: It's nice. So Peterson ignored the dean. He took a sabbatical from work and he started a Patreon where his, uh, his new followers could pledge monthly payments in exchange for Q&A sessions, online courses, and even monthly one-on-one counseling with a man himself. He was soon making like eighty grand a month, like crazy money on wow, this. Very, geez. very successful. Very good at Patreon. Yeah. Now, all the while, Peterson continued to ram hard into particularly the issue of recognizing trans people's identities. From Toronto Life. To his mind, arguing that gender is a social construct or a kind of performance, as the Ontario Human Rights Code says, an individual's subjective experience is just wrong. It's not an alternative hypothesis, Peterson says. It's an incorrect hypothesis. That's why the damn social justice warriors are trying to get it instagiated into law. They're implementing a social constructionist view of human identity into the law. No, they're just saying Mm. if you're going to work in one of these public fields, you don't get to treat people shitty because they're trans or non-binary. It's a very basic thing. It's you don't really even basic have to believe stuff. you can believe that transgender people are unhealthy and mentally ill and still call them by their preferred pronouns because it doesn't matter what we think privately about each other if you're going to work in a public thing like that. There's certain basic things you shouldn't do because it's just it's being a dick and it's fucking up the ability of you to do your job.
3: Yeah, it's yeah. common. It's common sense and common decency. Uh, it's if I if we're in a working environment or like a, a educational environment, and you're mm-hmm. trying to teach me something or be my colleague, and you're calling me butt shit. And I'm like, yeah. actually, could you call me by my name? And you're like, no, your name is Butch. Okay, Cody. Like, now
1: you're bringing up a personal issue you and I have had at work, and I thought we talked with HR about this, and my behavior was above reproach.
3: Well, HR didn't solve the problem, and we're here now, so we well, can. This is live, and this is why I came on
1: today to God confront you about this. Okay, you're both
2: fired.
1: So. Well, well, I'm gonna start a Patreon and. <laughs> I will, I will contribute
3: $80,000 to that. <laughs> Thank so you. I, so, so we can talk about this one-on-one.
1: <laughs> um, so C-16 passed, this Canadian anti-discrimination thing. It's now law in Canada. Things are fine. It hasn't destroyed freedom of speech. Things are
3: fine. Name a yeah. person who's been, like, arrested yeah. for this. It's Canada's
1: like- in broadly better shape than the United States. Uh, the problems they have aren't because of this law. You not know? Not, yeah, it's <laughs> right? not.
3: (laughs) Not causing a
1: lot of, a lot of, again, like the penalty for like someone like a teacher using someone's pronouns, like refusing to use someone's pronouns is like a fine. Um, it's essentially a traffic infraction is kind of how they treat it. Um, and obviously this has had like the fact that everything's fine has had a no impact on Jordan Peterson who went right on yelling about trans people for their made up pronouns and has made that like a, made that a cornerstone of his career In his increasingly popular YouTube lectures. He urged his fans to treat trans and non-binary people as confused or deluded When one person, after a public lecture, asked him why he would not use non-binary pronouns, he stated, I don't believe that using your pronouns will do you any good in the long run. Which is not your decision to make, Jordan. Oh my god, Jordan, it's not. I don't. I don't. I, I have been an employer. I have hired people. Some of them have been religious. I don't believe that going to church does you any good. But you know what? If I were to be discriminatory about them because they go to church and I don't care for church... I would rightfully get in trouble Yeah, because that's fucked up and none of my goddamn business. <laughs> like, it, uh, yeah,
3: You'd rightfully get in trouble for that. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's all, God, yeah. he's so uh, myopic. Yeah. Uh, but he won't, but he won't like change. It won't change his mind uh, that any of these things don't add up or that it hasn't yeah. like affected anybody. It's the same thing when he was on um, that comedian confronted him about like the, uh, gay uh, wedding cake bakery issue yeah. and he compared it to the civil rights uh, movement and then jordan peterson on camera was like "Ooh, uh, i guess maybe i was wrong about that um and he sort of like realized how fo- like f- foolish he was being yeah um and then never we never heard from it again never nope. heard of it again uh he did not actually change uh his mind or approach at all
1: um, no, he just got realized that he couldn't actually make a good argument against it. Yeah, So exactly. he continued to repeat it when he was not arguing and was instead lecturing to a room of people who would never question him. Yep. Yep. In a follow-up questions during that same lecture, another student asked if, without C16, he'd be willing to use pronouns like they and them if a transgender person asked him to. He responded that, it might depend on how they asked. Which is like the same thing Ben Shapiro says, right? Like, because actually, if you're a person, you just generally choose not to be shitty to the people immediately around you because it makes life harder for no good goddamn reason. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's frustrating.
3: Real, real simple and frustrating. Yeah. It depends on how um, they ask. God, what an unbelievable, like, can't even say yeah. Yeah. Can't even, can't even just confirm like, yeah, of course, because I'm a decent person. Yeah.
1: And it's extra frustrating because in a a bunch of his writing, Peterson does talk about the fact that cultures obviously evolve and change over time. He's written about this at length, and he's also admitted that cultural understanding of gender and, like, pronoun usage might change, and that that would be okay. During one of his 2016 debates, Peterson admitted, if our society comes to some sort of consensus over the next while about how we'll solve the pronoun problem, and that becomes part of popular parlance... And it seems to solve the problem properly without sacrificing the distinction between singular and plural and without requiring me to memorize an impossible list of an indefinite number of pronouns Then I would be willing to reconsider my position. And again, part of this is like he like there's always this. There are some people who have like suggested what I think are probably kind of linguistically non kind of dead ends like Z, which is like I don't think you're going to get a lot. But like they and them, uh, number one, already perfectly acceptable to use either a singular and plural or whatever and like there's not there's just not an indefinite interminably long list of pronouns that like people are really or like they're just saying like yeah don't don't call me like if i say don't call me this like try to remember to call me the thing that 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 i identify with like right and it's also not
3: even like People always assume like if you if you say something accidentally or like you don't know, like that's that's it. That's the one that's going to get It's like, well, no, then you'll be corrected. And then you like alter your behavior slightly.
1: Yeah. And it it doesn't even matter if you really get it, because I like to be entirely honest. Like I've read a lot of stuff about gender nonconforming stuff that I haven't understood. But all that matters is that when someone says, hey, this is how I prefer to be like that. okay fine. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Just don't easy. Easy. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's it's so easy.
1: Yeah, it's very, very simple, really. So, yeah, uh, Peterson's real issue here is that, in his mind, being trans or non-binary or anything that's not, like... Male female any of this stuff is unhealthy Uh, in his conception of the world order is masculine and chaos is feminine And if it turns out that a whole bunch of people aren't really either Then the cosmology of his mental universe might have to change and Jordan Peterson is not willing to do that Now the thing I find most worrying about him and most potentially dangerous is his obsession with whether or not other people are healthy This is really the big issue with Jordan Peterson Um, It consumes him and it leads him to attack people who make choices that don't fit his definition of healthy A great example of this in action would be Peterson's reaction to the rise of incel related terrorist attacks. In 2018, an involuntary celibate man named Alec Manassian uh, rented a van and drove it into a crowded sidewalk. He killed 10 people and wounded 14 more, and I think most of his victims were women, which was his goal. In a Facebook post he made prior to his shooting, Manassian wrote, Private Recruit Manassian, Infantry 00010, wishing to speak to Sergeant 4chan, please. The incel rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the Supreme gentleman, Elliot Roger, and he killed a bunch of people. Now, this is interesting to me because I I am actually like like a recognized expert in online radicalization. I make money from it. I get quoted by fucking like a lot. Like this is the thing that I study. Like it's the only thing that I actually have any degree of meaningful expertise in other than uh, certain narcotics. Um, And to me, As a guy who studies this for a living, Manassian's post makes a few things very clear. One of them is that he was radicalized in a community of similarly inclined people, somewhere on 4chan. So his radicalization occurred as part of a community that was self-radicalizing. Two... He was directly inspired by the example of another involuntary celibate terrorist, Elliot Roger, who was like the first one of them to shoot a bunch of people. And three, he sees his actions as something akin to military service in defense of a cause, right? Those things are very clear from that post, which tells you a lot about this man and how he became radicalized towards violence. A very useful piece of data if you actually care about what causes people to carry out attacks like this. Jordan Peterson doesn't know much about radical, or at least he doesn't admit to knowing much about it, because he's, he's never published anything relevant on incels or on terrorism in general. But when he was asked about this, he still felt the need to propose sweeping government-mandated changes in civilization in order to stop such attacks, which, given his attitudes towards other government-mandated things, I find interesting. I'm going to quote from the New York Times here. Violent attacks are what happen when men do not have partners, Mr. Peterson says, and society needs to work to make sure those men are married. He was angry at God because women were rejecting him, Mr. Peterson says of the Toronto Killer. The cure for that is enforced monogamy. That's actually why monogamy emerges. Mr. Peterson does not pause when he says this. Enforced monogamy is, to him, simply a rational solution. Otherwise, women will only go for the most high-status men, he explains. And that couldn't make either gender happy in the end. Half the men fail, he says, meaning they don't procreate. And no one cares about the men who fail. I laugh because it is absurd. This is the New York Times reporter. You're laughing about them, he says, giving me a disappointed look. That's because you're female. But aside from interventions that would redistribute sex, Mr. Peterson is staunchly against what he calls equality of outcomes or efforts to equalize society. He usually calls them pathological or evil. He agrees that this is inconsistent, but preventing hordes of single men from violence, he believes, is necessary for the stability of society. Enforced monogamy helps neutralize that. Mm, Mmm,
3: a lot (laughs) of a lot there's a lot there didn't he, he walked this back and was like well i didn't mean like literally a law i just mean like culturally we should like mm-hmm. generally like support monogamy yeah. and like have like yeah. but again even that is like yeah you're saying that society should change whether or not it's by a law or just mm-hmm. by culturally we support this and are vocal about it or do like campaigns or propaganda about it or whatever it is uh yeah that's you know what's
1: wild cody I spent I don't have any kids and I spent a decent chunk of my, my early adulthood single. I also had access to firearms and I didn't shoot anybody. You know why? Cuz that's hmm. bad to do.
3: was oh, real shitty to do that. That's,
1: and you know what? I have a lot of friends who are men and not dating women and not don't have kids. And you know what they don't do? Is murder a bunch of people. Murder
3: people because of it's bad. It. Yeah.
1: To murder people.
3: Yeah, it's bad to kill it's people. It's wrong. Um, we don't That's like all you it. need. Uh, it's very it's very easy yeah uh, to like to, it,
1: yeah. yeah to not commit mass murder and like if people are committing mass murder but ninety nine percent of people who are you know single and and don't have kids don't commit mass murder maybe the thing that's causing the mass murder isn't the fact that they're single but instead other factors like radicalization within communities that are inherently toxic and push people towards violence and are perhaps artificially accelerated and um and and po- uh, publicized by certain like algorithmic realities that cause yeah Maybe, maybe the issue is more in the thing that this person does and everyone else who is single doesn't do. And this person and other people who are in these same communities carry out terrorist attacks and other people who aren't dating anybody don't carry out terrorist attacks. Maybe we should care about this community that they're in. Maybe the community is the problem. Maybe it's the environment (laughs) that they keep going
3: back to, um, like a feedback loop. Also, like, yeah, his his approach to it is so it's bizarre, too, because it's like, no, you're you're just do the clean your room advice. Yeah. Like that's the like, that's the advice. Like well yeah, like guys should like work on themselves and like be socialized and like uh you know, get get a new skill, become desirable yeah. and these sort of things instead of wallowing in it in these like sad online extreme yeah. groups it's um, there's
1: a lot that's fucked up about it like and it just the, the, the worst part of it is this idea that personal responsibility matters to these people up until p- people have a problem with something like that that they also find weird and then it doesn't matter that like you're supposed to people are supposed to be free and personal responsibility is supposed to matter like let's ban this thing that I personally think is kind of weird mm-hmm. um like fuck you people yeah that's that's where chaos. I land um,
3: yeah, no uh, no authoritarianism unless, unless chaos uh, is creeping in. My idea of whatever chaos might be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, chaos is stuff I don't like, and order is stuff that I already like. So I don't need to change at all. The world needs to change in order for me to be happy, which is the thing that Jordan says is the cause of all evil in the world, but he doesn't recognize that he does.
3: It's wild, yeah, because he's like, like, well, yeah, yeah don't, don't uh, try to change the world. Unless you've like perfected yourself and fixed up your own stuff. He's a mess. So like what is it? maybe he should stop doing it too. Uh, yep. he li- he really like if you go through his twelve rules for life, he does not follow a single one of them.
1: No. New Okay. So that's the episode, Cody. You wanna Uh-oh. tell people where they can find you on the internet.com? Cody, don't Backslash worry,
0: there's part two.
1: Internet. Part two? Yeah. yeah. There will be a second Th- part of this. Thank goodness. We'll talk goodness because more about I've Dr. Jordan Peter. I have got so
3: much more to say. I've been saving it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. My name's Cody, and you can find me online uh, on Twitter, uh, Dr. Mr. Cody. You just, Google him on the accounts. I've got a show called Some More News on YouTube. Uh, we've got a Good. Patreon if you'd like to support us, and a podcast called Even More News. I do another podcast called Worst Year Ever with the host of this show and uh, my co-host of the other show. <laughs>
1: Donate to Cody's Patreon. It'll be great.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: E- episode's over. Boom. Done. Swish.
0: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month. No matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A and E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah!